I think we spent about four years uh, meeting uh, in this building, and we are grateful to God, aren't we, for its uh, provision. But we have to move on. We've explained that a number of times and why that's so. And uh, in two weeks' time, as has been mentioned, we will not be meeting here. Now, it took some time. Uh, We looked around, and God has wonderfully uh, and somewhat miraculously provided a building. I think it's about 750 metres on this road, just up that way. God has been very, very kind to us over a number of years. But the thing is, as we move from a church building to a school building, Southfields Academy up the road, moving from the comfortable squeeze of a room that fills about 90-odd to a slightly bigger room that fits just over 200, the potential is that it might unsettle us. Where will we park? Some will be thinking. Some will be thinking, oh, will it feel just that little bit too big? Yeah, so a lot of the parents will be going, oh, 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 how will the kids cope? Do you notice we always worry about a thousand times more than we ought to, and a lot more than the kids? Actually, children, the bigger question is always, how will the adults cope? <laughs> I wonder, how will we handle change? You see, if convenience and comfort are central to why we are here, if we are here today because, oh, we just saw a churchy kind of building and we thought, oh, we'll come along to that. It's a fairly scruffy church building, to be honest. But, yeah, we came because, you know, tradition and uh, it's a church. Well, if we're here because it's just around the corner from where we live and we don't go any further than about 800 metres... If what is central to our existence as Christ Church, if it's any of the above that I've mentioned, well, my friends, we are in serious trouble. With the changes that are coming, I therefore want us to go back to the, essentially to the foundations of who we are and what we are all about. Because when I said at the last couple of prayer meetings before I went away, and I, and I said this with all sincerity, I said, we could be meeting in the park in September. And it was looking like we were going to be. I said, we could be meeting in the park in September, and that is okay. I meant that. Now, thankfully, God has provided the building for us, Southfields Academy. Uh, but if we were to meet in a park with the autumn rain coming down on us. I think that could have been quite good for us. Because buildings matter very little indeed. Oh, they're helpful, but they're not essential. So what is essential? You know, what defines us? What makes us who we are? Fundamentally, what are we about? If you look back over the last few years at Christchurch Hillsfield, I think we've had a healthy concentration on building one another up, growing as Christians. You might call that discipleship. We've dug deep in the Bible and we've applied it to our lives, training people to handle the Bible faithfully. Uh, But that can never be an end of itself. It's a wonderful thing that we've done, but it can never be an end of itself. Because we dig deep in the Bible, we teach it carefully in groups and on Sundays so that we can apply it to every area of our lives. We want Christ to be, as we just sung, we want him to be Lord of all. Through his word and by his spirit. But we also want to tell others of the life-saving good news of Jesus 
So we dig deep in God's word so we can sow it wide, if you like. Discipleship should never become introspective, just in and of itself. Following Jesus in in his word demands us to lift our eyes, to lift our gaze, to look at the pupils in the classes around us and say they need something more than they've got. To look at your colleagues and say, I see them with an eternal perspective that they're going at the moment somewhere where I am not. And all of that and more is the reason that we find ourselves in John 3, both this week and next week. Now, I guess for some of us, this will feel a bit like a a kind of familiar territory. This is such a well-known story, isn't it? Bible story. But I hope and pray it's refreshing and I hope affirming as well to many. Because if you're a Christian here today, it's good, isn't it, to be reminded of fundamentally who we are. We are people who have received new life in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, change is coming, and we are moving, but it won't matter in the slightest if we know who we are and what we are all about. Now, this focus will mainly be, uh, this week's focus will mainly be on what new life is in Jesus for us, a kind of refresher, an exciting reminder, I hope. But for some of us, I, I guess this may be true, for some of us, this may be quite new to you. Even if you've been coming to church, you've got a kind of background in church, you've been doing this for a while, this may be new. Let's pray for receptive hearts and minds. Next week we'll still be in this passage, we'll go elsewhere as well, but uh, we'll begin to see what living out this new life looks like that we've received if we're Christians. And what it means for others around us as well. Well that's where we're going, new life. As I mentioned, uh, we've just uh, been on holiday. We've just come back from holiday in Spain. And uh, each evening, it was so hot there. I mean, uh, ridiculous. Anyway, you South Africans were going, no, not at all. But, you know, it was hot for me. Uh, and each day, we had a bit of, you know, we'd go back and get to the pool and we'd throw a few balls around. I don't know, everyone seemed to desert the pool at that time of day. So we were there throwing balls around in the pool. And a couple of guys came and joined us. Uh, a couple of British guys, they were on holiday there too. And they start throwing balls around. Really nice chaps. And we got chatting. And conversations, because we're British. We, we talked about the weather for a while. But we got inevitably to the, what do you do, question. And one guy I spoke to the most, uh, he was down the deep end with me, throwing the balls. And, uh, and uh, he turned out to be a professional tennis player. And he asked me what I did. And I got that kind of usual response that I get when I kind of answer the question. I can throw a ball, okay, so I looked all right. And he was, he, I said, I'm a church minister. He nearly drowned at that point. <laughs> and his language is far too fruity to say right now. You could virtually hear his kind of mind exploding. His presuppositions, what he thought about Christians, was just kind of get blown out of the water. He was looking at me, I was going... He's a fairly normal... Uh, you have to use your kind of imagination here. But he's looking at me going, this guy's a fairly normal bloke. And he's not just shyly saying he's a Christian and then kind of backing off in an embarrassed way. I was really going for him. 
I was trying to tell him in, my, in a very faltering way, you know, my kind of normal way, how amazing Jesus was. And, you know, he had a good life. He traveled the world. He played Roger Federer. Amazing. And, you know, he, he'd done all these things. And I was trying to tell him, your life is nothing. It's rubbish in comparison to mine with Jesus. And do you know what he said to me after a little while? He said, are you one of those born-again Christians? And the way he said, are you one of those born-again Christians, was similar to the tone that one might expect to hear someone say, are you kind of a white supremacist or something so awful or are you a supporter of Donald Trump? (laughs) No political allegiances uh, all the side. He had lived and played tennis in America for a number of years. And essentially what he had, he had cultural baggage. He heard that, he had that phrase of born again Christian. And he had all of these things in his mind of what he thought that may be or ought to be. It was a very loaded phrase. It is a very loaded phrase. And that's why I've titled these uh, couple of weeks in John 3. I've described it as, as new life rather than being born again. Born again is probably the most contentious of all the images that Jesus uses to reach the hearts and the minds uh, within John's Gospel. Now, if you just to flip over the chapter to John 4, you'll see the woman at the well. He speaks there of her need for living water. Not being to be born again, he says, you need living water. Now, both of those are pictures of the eternal life that we receive when we trust Jesus. But that phrase, born again, has been hijacked in some ways as a phrase. We'll come to some of those misunderstandings later, but ask yourself this. If we were to say as the elders, we stood up here today and said, look, we've decided we're going to change the name of the church. Currently we're called Christchurch Earlsfield, and we've kind of been going through John's Gospel, we haven't, but imagine. And, and there we are, we've, we've got two options for you, okay? We're going to put it to a vote. And option one is... The Living Water Church. Option two is the Born Again Christian Church. Which would you prefer? Which would you like to invite your friends? I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? The Born Again Christian, that phrase is so loaded. And when this guy said that, uh, uh, asked me this question, uh, I actually recoiled. I didn't want to be understood in that stereotypical way of, you know, kind of, what is a born-again Christian? What do people think of when they hear that phrase? They hear, you know, kind of that a slightly narrow, kind of bigoted, argumentative, and slightly annoying, more, even more annoying than me, uh, you know, placard-waving Christian. You understand the stereotype. So in my reply, what did I say? Are you a born-again Christian? I said, yes, but... Not in the way that you think. He asked more questions. I managed to tell him the gospel over about three or four nights. We met at the same time, throwing balls, chatting away. I had two Corinthians in my mind from last term that were new creations. In the end, I think we we kind of got round to it. He got the idea. But I kept away from this phrase, born again Christian, again and again and again. Born again, it's not the kind of language that you use in conversation, is it? But please do recognise the kindness of Jesus to use such images to help us understand his love for us. 
and his transforming power in us. Jesus uses these images throughout the Gospels, particularly in John, to engage hearts and minds, your heart and mind. He doesn't say, you know, all these kind of complicated phrases. He uses images which you can go, yeah, I get that. What does he say? You must be born again. You've got a drink of living water. Jesus describes himself as the light, the, 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 the bread, the, the vine, the door, the gate, again and again. And we get it. We see who Jesus is through these images. And we know who we are. And we know what we need as a result. And here in John 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. He's a, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, we see. And look what he says in verse 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Born again. Of all the images that Jesus uses, it is the most radical. Uh, it speaks of radical new life. That is found in Jesus. That's our first point. Our first main point. Radical new life. And you've got to get this. It it, it is radical in a number of ways. But note first here. If you can. It's not seen as as some people see. As you know. Coming a Christian. Getting eternal life. it's, It's not this massive outpouring of emotion. Is it? Look at Nicodemus. It's just like you and me. In many ways. There's no immediate emotional response to Jesus here. Unlike the woman in, verse, in chapter 4, for example, around the well. She, is, she responds to Jesus in a very, very different way. But with Nicodemus, as he responds to Jesus, you might even say that his emotions are quite muted. See, to be born again, this metaphor or this image, this picture of eternal life, it's not an emotional experience. Or some kind of lifestyle change that we make. It is a total radical transformation. And look how radical being born again is. Let me ask, what, what, what doesn't Jesus say to Nicodemus? It's interesting this. What doesn't Jesus say to Nicodemus? Because I don't think he says what we want him to say. Jesus doesn't walk up to Nicodemus and say, hey, hey, you, you Jewish ruling council member, you know, you're part of the big guys, aren't you? You're, you're kind of sorted, you're very bright, you're old, you're, you're a wealthy man, you're a respected member of society. Jesus doesn't walk up to Nicodemus and say, hey, you, my friend, have done very well. And, you know, <clears throat> let me come. And if you want to enter the kingdom of God, let's take what you are and what you have done and let me just add to that. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, look, let's go halves. Let's go 50-50. You know, you're such an amazing guy. You've got enough, you know, nearly enough to get into the kingdom of God. Let me just give you a little bit extra. He doesn't say that, does he? He says you've got to be born again. You, the most respected, wealthy statesman, you have got to be born again. You've got to go right back to the beginning. And Jesus is saying, nothing you have done, nothing about who you are, 
counts to get you into the eternal kingdom of God. Do you know what that means for Nicodemus? And do you know what that means for you and me? It makes us no better than anyone else. And do you realise that that is why this image is so unpalatable, so difficult to take for people like Nicodemus, for people like my friend in the pool in, in Spain, for the person you live next door to, who's got so much. When I said to that guy in the pool in Spain, I said to him, uh, look, I, I was trying to sort of be quite lowly about myself. I said, I've got nothing to offer God. I, I need him to work, for, you know, and do something for me and offer him. And I was speaking of Jesus. I was trying to get him to the gospel. He hated that idea. It was the most animated he became in all of our conversations. When I said that I've got nothing to get to heaven on my own merits. I've got nothing. He looked at me and he looked at my life and he, and he said, but, but, but. And he was so frustrated. Because why? By implication, it meant that he had nothing to offer God. And that is why this picture of being born again has always been so attractive to some in society. How you might describe it as, you know, the broken, the lowly, the needy. The ones who know they have nothing. Oh, it's an attractive picture then, isn't it? But what about to us and those we now work with? Some of you who work in the city um, have the pleasure sometimes to visit those nice clubs. These are called work, uh, kind of the businessmen's clubs, the businesswomen's clubs, you know, and, and so on. They're, they're quite amazing. I've been to one or two every now and then. I've had the privilege of going to meet people there. It's amazing. I love them. I don't go to them very often, but when I do, wow, I get very excited. Can you imagine going into a club like that with all of those wealthy businessmen and women? And you say to them, by the way, you in your £5,000 suit, you've got nothing. You've got nothing to offer God to get you into heaven. You've got to be born again. If you say the same thing to a homeless person uh, somewhere in London, the difference is remarkable, isn't it? Because they know they've got nothing. That is why in Matthew 21, for example, Jesus says to the religious leaders, the establishment people, the wealthy, they've got so much. He says to the tax, he says the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you. Why? Because they understand the gospel. They understand that they have nothing and they need something from God. I think it will probably be one of the greatest challenges for all of us, whether you're at school right now, and you sit next to someone who they want nothing to do with God whatsoever. Or you work with a colleague or you go to a sports club or you, you, know, you live next door to someone. This is, will be the hardest thing for us. Is to tell them that they need to be born again. That they need total transformation. This is utterly radical, isn't it? Because you've got to be able to show someone they've got nothing to offer. And you can see the cogs turning in Nicodemus' head. Look at verse 4. He says, how can someone be born 
when they're old? It's the obvious question, isn't it? I think one of my children was saying that this morning. Nicodemus asked, look, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Yeah. Jesus answered, look at it, verse 5. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. Nicodemus, you silly man, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now the astute of you, the clever of you, will have noticed that Jesus, as he responds to Nicodemus here, is actually summarising a whole bunch of little passages in the Old Testament that we looked at just a couple of years ago in our, in our small groups. Uh, and I think Nicodemus would have got that. He's a you know, member of the Jewish ruling council. He's probably thinking of Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. If you don't know those passages, let me summarise them quickly. Ezekiel 36 speaks of the promises of the new covenant. Uh, the blessings there of a new heart, of being washed and cleansed by the work of God's spirit. Ezekiel 37 is that amazing picture of the valley of dry bones. And God speaks. His spirit comes and breathes new life where there was death. God's Spirit comes and brings new life. And Jesus is drawing on these images of uh, of being born again. It's when God breathes. New life comes. The Spirit gives new life into into that which was spiritually dead. And when that happens, that person is radically new is a new creation, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians, as we saw last term. They have a new kingdom power, as Paul says in one of his other letters. They have a new heart, new desires, new motivations. Peter describes it in in 1 Peter 1 as a total change, uh, that now the imperishable seed has been planted in them. The change is so radical, it's it's morally radical, it's it's psychological. Every way, this is a new person when the Spirit breathes new life. Many of you know, all my kind of illustrations from holiday involve sport. You kind of get a picture of me. I I love running on holiday, and uh, being in Spain, it was actually quite hard to run. Um, some of you are looking at that, you're quite pathetic and old. Yes, I am. But yeah, work with me on this illustration for a moment if you can. Uh, every day I try and uh, kind of run late in the afternoon, run by the sea. Uh, it was fantastic. It was just so hot. That was a problem. I would leave as late as I could in the afternoon to go for my kind of like little run. And I'd listen to music on the way. And I had, a, had this playlist of a friend who I was listening along. And uh, I got this song and it was so helpful. And it said this, Beneath our skin, a new creation. The night is done, our chains are broken. Our time has come and the wait is over. The king is here and his name is Jesus. Now, to be honest, running in 30-odd degree heat, I felt like a very old creation. But I think that song nailed it in some ways. Because we may not see it as we wake up in the, in the morning and look in the mirror. We probably think, ooh, very old creation. That's not, the, that's not the case. Look beneath our skin, we should see a new creation if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. The Spirit has breathed new life. 
born again. Total radical transformation. New thinking. New priorities. New desires. New, new, new. new, Everything new. It is radical and it is total. It is utter transformation. Now I've stolen this illustration but I thought it would be helpful. If you've got an apple tree and you think next year, I I quite fancy some oranges. What do you do? Well, you could get your pruning things out, like cut it away, you know, make it back, give it some new fertiliser, maybe change the soil a bit, you know, do do what you want. What are you going to get? You're going to get apples, aren't you? You need a complete new tree if you want some oranges there. If you want new fruit, you've got to have new roots to get a new tree. And that's where we sometimes get this thing wrong when we become Christians. Uh, when we are Christians, uh, we think we just need a, bit of ref- we d- we need a bit of reformation. A bit of change in our lives. I mean, you know, you just try a bit harder, you know. You read the, the Bible and you do your best and you grit your teeth and you go through. You make your life more acceptable to God. You know, you, you just, you try and cut things out as much as you possibly can. And that is what makes you a Christian. No. It's total transformation. It's total new life. It's utterly radical. Radical actually comes from the word radex, which means root. You've got to change it, your roots. And Jesus is saying you must be born again to the end of the kingdom of God. Whoever you are, it is the only way. Born again meaning utter, radical, total root transformation. As God breathes new life into the spiritually dead. Is that you? To be born again means radical new life. Secondly, uh, Jesus is also showing here the necessity of new life. Let's quickly look at that, much more quickly. Jesus is clear here. His language is uh, inclusive, you might say, but not in the way that most would appreciate today. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3, everyone. Uh, very true, I tell you, no one can, can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Same in verse 5, virtually the same. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water of the Spirit. Verse 7 again, he said, you must, you must be born again. However old you are here right today, please understand this. There's one requirement. To enter God's good eternal kingdom for eternity, heaven, there's one requirement. You've got to be born again. You must be transformed by the Holy Spirit, breathing new life into you. Look at the no one in verse 3 and verse 5. It doesn't allow anyone, anyone that you know, whoever they are, whatever they've got, whatever they've done, it doesn't allow anyone to be exempt. No one. If anyone of us wants to enter the, uh, God's good eternal kingdom, we must be born again. It is necessary new life. It is not an optional extra. And the shock of this, the shock of this, we'll look at this more next week. The shock of this being said to Nicodemus as a member of the Jewish ruling council, it, it, it's just, everyone would have just been dumbstruck. But today, let's just see that none of us can barter our way into heaven on our own terms. 
If, Nic- if Nicodemus wasn't credentialed up enough, you and I certainly are not. Whatever credentials we hold dear in our life today, whoever we think we are, if we kind of look around and we, you know, how do we want to be known? Is it because of our money? Our career progressions? Because of the friends that we have, the family, our backgrounds, the education that we've got? Our beards? Sorry, just had to go for that one. It doesn't matter. Whoever we are, whatever we've got, nothing matters when it comes to entry into the kingdom of God. Oh, you may be able to get into one of those very you know, opulent business clubs in the centre of London with its panelled walls and its very comfy leather chairs. But you've got nothing to gain you entry into God's eternal club with its jewelled walls and its thrones of gold. Like, a, like Nicodemus, we must as a necessity, be born again. I told you it was a quick point it is. We've seen what that being born again is, what new life is, if you like. We've seen the utter necessity for, God, for entry into God's good attainment. But how, how do we get in? How are we born again? How do we receive this new life? And for some of you here today, I'm sure this may be the first time you're considering it. Listen. Because this is the way that you get to be with God for eternity. And it starts today, if you wanted to. What do we see happening with Nicodemus? Last point, receiving new life. What does Nicodemus do? It's extraordinary, isn't it? He states, look at verse 2. It's it's an observation, really. He comes uh, on behalf of. Uh, He's representing And he states an observation about the nature of Jesus. And Jesus responds. And at first glance, it's actually difficult to see how Jesus' response actually follows what Nicodemus says. And so Nicodemus asks him another question in verse 4. And that is it, if you like, from Nicodemus. You get a little quizzical of verse 9, don't you? How can this be? And that is it. Nicodemus, you know, a member of the Jewish ruling council, he speaks a lot. It's well respected. You listen to a man like that. But that is it. That's all you get from him. Jesus sounds even slightly exasperated. Look at verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So what does Nicodemus get from Jesus? How does he respond? If you, again, if you, different responses, different people. If you were to go to the next chapter and look at the woman around the well in John 4, how does Jesus respond to her? It's listening ear. He cares. He's very attentive to her. But Nicodemus gets an obscure Old Testament passage which he's asked to consider. See, the Old Testament scholar, sorry to use a cricket analogy here, but he's, he's thrown a kind of leg break. That's just a really hard ball, okay? He's got to, oh, what do I do? He's asked to consider something. He's challenged. 
And Jesus is saying to this kind of establishment man, shut up, sit down, listen and think. And for all we see of Nicodemus, he does just that. The next time we see Nicodemus in John's Gospel, you can flip over, you can make a note of it if you want. John 7, verse 50 and 51. What's he doing? He's encouraging all of his Jewish leaders to listen to Jesus. Listen, he says. Give him an ear. He starts here in John 3 and he doesn't stop listening to Jesus. Go back to chapter 3 if you can, verse 13. Let's just have a look at that. Look what he's got to listen to. No one, Jesus says, no one ever has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses uh, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. In verse 14, that's the Old Testament passage I mentioned to you. That's where Jesus is pointing Nicodemus and saying, consider, listen. He's challenging him. He's taking him back to Numbers chapter 21. So it's a very strange story in many ways. The, the impatient people of God were, were bitten by snakes that God sent among them. And as they lay there on the ground, poison going through their veins, they cried out to Moses and they cried out to God for forgiveness. And God told Moses what to do. He, to make this bronze snake and to lift it up and put it on a pole. And everyone who would look upon that lifted up snake on a pole would live. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, listen, think. What does it mean, lifted up? Who must be lifted up so that the poison drains from you and you live? Well, he says it's the Son of Man. And Jesus is that. He is the Son of Man. But Jesus is saying to Nicodemus right now, listen, think it through. This new life, being born again, it can only happen when someone is lifted up for you. You notice that uh, he's passive. He can't do it himself, can he? You're lying poisoned on a floor, struggling for breath. You ask yourself a question. Go back to the born again analogy. How many of you here, put your hands up, who, who, kind of a, who initiated being born? Yourself? None of us. A baby is not brought into the world because it decides one day, mm, yeah, I'm going to be born. No. I'm not going to go into the details of that right now, but you get the picture. Someone else does the work. Someone else carries the weight, the burden, suffers the pain, bleeds for you. We cannot make ourselves Christians. We cannot enter the kingdom of God or heaven on our own. (coughs) What do we all have to do? We have to let someone do it for us. We have to receive it and believe it. Believe in the one who was lifted up for you. So how do we receive this new life? Like Nicodemus, we have to have the humility first to listen. We have to think about what Jesus says. And then we have to receive the new life that he offers. 
as we believe in him who was lifted up on a cross to take all the poison of our hearts on himself so that we could live eternally. This new life is everything. And changing venues, the struggles in our lives, they are significant, don't hear me wrong. But this, being born again, is everything. Verse 14 and 15 to finish. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, Jesus. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What defines us if we are Christians here today? What are we all about? What are we here for? New life. New creation. Born again. It is who we are, it is why we gather. And it is what we must speak of. Let's pray as we close.